Welcome to Rat Salad Review. This is Lou Mavs here, and I am manning the ship by myself. However, I am joined by a very special guest. This band is considered one of the classic American heavy metal bands. They've been around since the 70s, and they've been releasing music since the 80s. They got back together again just about a little over five years ago, releasing killer material. Definitely as good as anything out there that the new bands are putting out, if you ask me, better than most of it. He is an original founding member of Sirith Ungol. I'm very proud to say that we have Mr. Robert Garvin tonight on Rat's Eye Review. Robert, how are you? And are you freezing? No, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm a wolf boy. What I was trying to do is I have Lord Cthulhu. I'm not sure he can... I was trying to get him in the picture, but he didn't really, he wasn't showing up. But he, I see him. He's sitting here watching us. So uh, <laughs> he's, he's, he's kind of my heroes in these doom laden times. You know, we have to turn to uh, I, I unspeakable hear influences like him. But anyway, <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad to be here with you. And uh, yeah, I'm uh, real excited. We have this new EP coming out May 28th, uh, Half Past Human. And so anything you want to ask, I'm, I, I want to answer for you. Thank you very much. As you said, Half Past Human out on May 28th on Metal Blade Records. Currently, they actually have one of the songs available for it streaming on Apple Music. Brutish Manchild. I actually listened to it a bunch today and I thought it was very catchy. A good groove to it. I love the, uh, the, the shout out choruses in the middle. Very happy with it. So... All right, we'll begin the line of questioning. Why an EP as opposed to an LP this time? Well, you know, after the band got back together, there was some question whether we would ever even release new material. And uh, we uh, we found this group of people, uh, producers, putting out this full-length animated movie called uh, Planet of Doom. I think Tim found it online. And on our third album, uh, one Foot in Hell, we had a song, Doom Planet, uh, which was kind of like a do- one of our doomy songs. Uh, and so we contacted them, and and we ended up writing a song that's going to be in this movie, which is a series of uh, artists mixed together with bands that would do different segments of the movie. And it's going to be really amazing. So we wrote the song, Which is Game. And when we wrote it, so many people were excited. They were like, hey... Uh, why don't you guys put out like a full album of material? And that's really what we wanted to hear because that's, that was our goal. But first we wanted to see if people were even interested in hearing any more new Sarah So then we knocked out forever black and uh, part of our uh, agreement with metal blade was to put out an EP too. So we were trying to figure out what to do for that. A lot of people were suggesting we go back and re-record some older songs. And at first we were like, you know, that, we didn't think that that, you know, at our age, we're like, hey, man, we're going to plow ahead here. Let's let's do another album. Uh, you may get this. Most people don't get this joke. But I said we were going to be like Grand Funk. We're going to knock out an album every six weeks. And if you know anything about the band Grand Funk back in the day, like, you know, when you got signed to a record label, they literally put out two or three albums in the first year you were together. Oh, I and think, so- yeah, Russian Kiss had similar record deals as well where they were putting out two albums a year practically so after we put out uh, forever black you know we're we're looking at this ep trying to figure out what to do and once again like i said so many people said why don't you you know redo some older songs 
and, and we, we sat back and, and we thought, you know, if enough people really wanted to hear some of these old songs, let's do it. So our goal was to pick four songs that kind of had a similar theme. And, and the goal was to breathe some new life into them, but also make them ultra heavy because the one thing our band really wants to do is create heavy music. I'm not sure we're successful at it. I'm not sure people agree with it, but everything that we do is geared towards cranking out as heavy a music as we can. I'd say you accomplished that. Forever Black is a killer record. I remember listening to an interview on a separate podcast called Talking Maiden, where Jarvis, your bass player, who's also the founding member of Night Demon, hi Cthulhu, <laughs> where uh, Jarvis was on and he mentioned that he was working with you. And I remembered Sarah Thungle because my brother had the cassette for One Foot in Hell when I was a kid. I was about six years old when it came out. And I remember he used to play it religiously and I thought it was a great album. And when I found out that uh, Sarah Thungle was back releasing new music, I was really excited about it. And I jumped at the chance to listen to Forever Black. And I have to say, it's probably in, in the last 20 years since traditional metal sort of fell off kilter to the mainstream, it's one of the best releases that I've heard. So I really want to give you kudos for that. Thank you. Thank you. When we were writing that album, that was our goal. You know, we wanted an album that would kick ass and we wanted all thriller and no filler. You know, we wanted it to be like some of our favorite albums all time, like Deep Purple and Rock, uh, you know, Black Sabbath, Master Reality, you know, Budgie Squawk, you know, I mean, I could go on, but you know, Montrose first album, you know, any, any album where you started it and you went all the way through it without any disappointments and that, that was the goal. And I think we came pretty close. Not only that, but the musicianship, I mean, between you and Tim, who have been recording with Sarah Thungle since the beginning, there's been no step missed, uh, either in songwriting or in execution of, of the performances on record. So I think that definitely speaks not only to your talents, but you know your, your skill, your craft, and your genuine love for what you're doing. I'm glad you guys kept it up. Yeah, I need to point out here, uh, you know, Jarvis not only got us back together, but he's playing bass on that. The fact that him and Jimmy, and I'm kind of like moving ahead to... to that was actually going to be my next question, but go ahead. <laughs> on Half Past Human, they embrace these old songs of our band so amazingly. And uh, not only that, you know, we have some really talented musicians in the band. Matter of fact, so I, I read... Uh, someone comment on YouTube, which actually I thought hit the nail on the head. They said, this is a guitar driven album. And it is matter of fact, Jimmy, you know, even though we got Greg and Jimmy both playing lead guitar, Jimmy's, you know, our, our, our lead guitarist, he, he joined the band right before paradise lost our last studio album for the band broke up. And he just has such an amazing talent uh, coming up with riffs, coming up with solos. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's just, just amazing. Now, all, all of us together work on the songs, all of us have input, but the ability to have a, a guitarist of that quality and a bass player of Jarvis's quality and a guitarist as good as Greg, you know, and then you have Tim and me rounding out the band. But, but I, I think what really came out of the EP was the ability of us to take these old songs and once again, just imbue them with some kind of like extra heavy discipline 
that wasn't there on the original songs. And these songs were written, you know, 1974 to 1976. And their structure hasn't changed that much since then. So what we did is we just basically tweaked the lyrics a little bit and just added like a ton of attitude. Definitely. I mean, production techniques uh, today have, I don't want to say improved because I do love the old school analog sound. I, I, I do love the tape to tape sound where it's like you can hear, you know, the, the soul of the instruments as they're being recorded. Sometimes my, my main problem with a digital recording is that it sounds too compressed, but I don't think this EP or uh, Forever Black suffers for it. What I would like to ask though, Having started the band in 71 and carry on to 50 years later, which happy anniversary, 50 years of Sarah Thungle, that's awesome. What were some of the challenges that you think you experienced being a musician in the 70s as opposed to what you think bands or musicians would experience today? Because it seemed like then a lot more people were open to going and experiencing live bands whether they heard them or not today it's almost you know for an undiscovered band to be heard they have to do you know well when when concerts were around before the pandemic and definitely will be after you know a lot of them have to do the pay to play thing where it's harder for them to get recognized because not everyone can sell 40 tickets for a show to open so what would you say were like some of the biggest challenges then for you I think some of the challenges have stayed the same, but the one thing that's made everything a lot, I would say, more diplomatic for people now, especially new bands, is you have the internet. And sure, it's plugged up with so much stuff that it's hard to, to find content that you want to hear that may be good, but at least you have that opportunity. If you go back to when we started, you know, you had radio stations and you had major record companies and there was a handful of clubs, and it was just really hard for us to get anything accomplished. That's why we released Frost and Fire, which is considered our first album, but it was originally conceived as a demo, which we were trying to shop around to get a record contract. And the reason we did it so fancy, we thought, hey, if we can produce an album and take it to a record company and say, hey, look, we can do the whole project on our own. We just need some support and some backing, and uh, you know, we can take it from there. But unfortunately, that really didn't do much to help the band out either. But it did start us down a path where we got the album exported to Europe and South America and Japan. So people actually started hearing about the band. The irony was we put our most commercial music on that first album, Frost and Fire, thinking that, you know, we needed to get airplay or we needed to get some sort of foot in the door of the record company as, as, as far as, as songs that could be uh, sold as radio songs. And so we held back all our heavy stuff. And there was one uh, large radio station in Los Angeles here, which played the album when it came out. And I talked to the DJ the next day and he said, you know, your music's kind of too heavy for us to play. And when I look back at this, it's, it's almost like a joke because they were playing bands like Deep Purple and Black Sabbath, you know, and Iron Butterfly at 11.30 every night so the DJs could switch shifts. And so the fact that they thought our most commercial material was too heavy for radio airplay, we decided when King of the Dead came out just to pull out all the stops and actually show actually what we wanted to do with our first album, which was just play some really heavy music. 
And so that's kind of how that whole thing started. I'm not sure if I answered your question or not, but it was difficult back then for new bands and it's difficult today, but you have the platform of the internet, which allows you to be heard by uh, many more people. And if you have a, a product to sell, you know, there's people out there that are interested in listening to it. No, you definitely answered my question. Thank you for that. And I would have to say that I agree with you because I never had the chance to see Sarah Thungle live, but I was able to see a live performance on YouTube. It was broadcasted on the German television show Rock Palace. I think that's what it's pronounced. Yes. And it was killer. I mean, I was just enthralled. I was like, my God, where has this band been all this time? So it brought a lot of joy to me to be able to say that I finally got to see what, I mean, be different if I were there. I'm sure I would enjoy it a lot more. But to see you guys, you know, on stage and performing at a level that I would say rivals some of the bigger stadium bands or arena bands. I mean, I was just like, these guys should be bigger they really should the fact that you're still doing it is a testament to i think the soul of the artist you know it's like the artist creates and they just put music out there as long as there's people like you out there to inspire others to do that i mean i could see it opening the floodgates for great art to come out well let's let's hope that's the truth you know that concert uh what's amazing about that the band that you know we're not as as young as we were when we first got together and probably we were more handsome back then. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think a lot of those videos, you know, they have close-ups, you know, of us. And, and it kind of drives me crazy because uh, every time we play a big festival, I'm hoping that they don't have diamond vision because the farther you are away from the band, the better we sound, I think. Uh, oh, come on. <laughs> well, you know, I'm the drummer and they always take that shot from the side where it looks like you're sitting on a commode or something, you know, they never <laughs> have the, it's, it's, it just drives me crazy. You know, it's kind of like that weird side shot from the side of the hi-hats. Well, better uh, to see how you're looking when you're playing as opposed to an overhead shot where they can just see the top of your head. I mean, you know. Well, I, I'm, I'm just saying, I, I think our band, the music is there, but we're not as good looking as we were at once. But, you know, we're, we're trying. I, I need to mention something about that show. Uh, Greg, at the time, his, uh, one of his family members was seriously ill and he couldn't leave. And so we played a series of three shows. And uh, Armand, who actually is a guitarist for Night Demon, and he also owns a studio where we recorded Witch's Game, Forever Black, and Half Past Human, he sat in on those three shows. And it just goes to show his amazing musicianship, too, to fill in for one of the Sir Thungle original members. And I would joke with him, you know, on the uh, Wikipedia page, he's going to have like that little at the bottom graph where they have all the uh, the members of the band. Yes. He was a member of Sir Thungle for the, that period. So I just want to give a shout out to him. Also, you know, a lot of people have talked about how great all these projects we did sound. We did them at his studio called the Captain's Quarters. And it's right near our band room, which is, 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 is a good thing. But... Uh, the ability he has to capture the band and to tr try to kind of like use his own skill to get us to sound what we want to sound like and yet still be modern and relevant, I think has really been one of the reasons for our success. And so I, I want to give a little bit of credit out to him and his studio. Well, I hope he's watching. 
Definitely dig Night Demon a lot. I appreciate their love for the old school metal. We can talk a bit about them. As a matter of fact, we've played a lot of shows with them where we've gone on and played the shows together since mm-hmm. Jarvis is in the band. And, and it's just amazing watching them play. So we're brothers in arms. They were uh, another band that I was able to see on uh, YouTube. You know, they definitely had a live performance. I think they've actually played uh, Brooklyn at a venue called St. Vitus which is a very popular metal club. I'd almost have to say it's like the new Lemoore's practically, if you're familiar with that venue. Yes, yes, of course. We played in Brooklyn. We played at the Williamsburg Hall of Music. It was an amazing experience and we really enjoyed being there. And I'd like to come back because we saw, I think the Holland Tunnel, the New Jersey airport. And I saw, I think the Statue of Liberty on the way to the show, but that's all we got to see. So I'd like to come back and do it again. That would be great. I'll definitely drag Wayne out of his cave and definitely come check it out. Whether you play Brooklyn, whether you play Long Island, I'll definitely drag him with me. And we're going to pay for our tickets because we believe in supporting the bands. Well, that's cool. I remember now it's called the Defenders of the Old. And it was a pretty amazing uh, group of bands that they had there. Really nice venue. And uh, Michael Whalen, the artist that painted all our album covers, which are just extremely unbelievable. Matter of fact, what's behind me right here, this is all part of the cover of Half Past Human. He actually mm-hmm. lives in Connecticut, so he showed up and came to that show to see us for the first time. It was a landmark show for us because we'd never actually been able to play for him before. He thoroughly enjoyed it. And so, like I said, if we can come back to that area, you know, we're ready to go right now. Let's hope they start lifting all these mandates soon. Let's hope that this pandemic starts wearing off sooner than later. Actually, I would like to ask you, how have you been holding up since this shutdown started over a year ago? How have you personally been holding up? Well, you know what? I'm not dead. And I've done quite a few interviews in the last few days, and it's hard to complain and to whine when so many people have died and suffered through this and it's still still going on all over the world. But if you separate the fact from that, uh, how this has affected to the arts industry or the music industry, it's just devastated. You know, and I'm sure there's other industries that has been affected the same way, but since I have like an eye into what's going on in the music industry, it's been really hard for us because we had Forever Black ready to go April 24th. It was released just a few days ago last year. And we were never more pumped up. If you saw that rock hard video, we were like that times 10. We were so ready to go after recording that album. And we had a whole series of shows lined up, like the biggest shows of our career. And we were ready to go out and seriously kick some ass. And a lot of people said, oh, I saw your first show and you guys were so great. Well, in the two years that we were working up to Forever Black, every show we picked up some steam we got more energy, recoup some of that stage talent that we'd lost from the past. And, and we were really getting ready to go out and show what we had uh, to offer. And the pandemic hit, which sidetracked everything. So what the goal is now is for us just to make it through the other side, all of us alive, so that we can regroup and continue where we left off and hoping that, you know, all our friends and fans around the world um, send out you know, our support for them and their families, hoping that they can do the same. Very wise words. I'm just praying and hoping for live music to return soon because I definitely feel like the world needs it. You know, like we need an outlet. Since you mentioned your excitement towards the end of this so that you could get back on the stage, I personally have been on a crusade and I mentioned this to uh, Wayne and Greg and on my own podcast, I'm on a crusade to keep physical media alive. It pains me personally that there's so much good 
material out there that has come out in the past that you can't find on streaming. And I, I don't have a vinyl player. A lot of my friends do. So a lot of them purchase vinyl more than CD now. I'm still buying CDs. Thankfully, I still have a 2014 laptop that has a CD player that, that hasn't broken on me yet. So I could still buy a CD, rip it to iTunes and listen to it on my iPhone. With you being that the entire discography is available on streaming media, do you still feel that there's a role of importance in physical media, either CDs or vinyl? Of course. And remember, you're talking to an old man. So uh, I have a funny story. When Paradise Lost came out, the record company said, you know, we're not releasing it on LPs anymore. It's all CDs. And we were kind of blown away. Uh, I did a lot of the artwork layout on the albums. And so it's being an artist or graphic artist, you know, you want as large a piece of uh, real estate you can to use for your designs, right? And Michael Whalen's paintings were so fantastic having his artwork shrunk down to the size of a CD. There's nothing wrong with that, but I mean, it's still, it's not the same as a physical, you know, as a physical uh, 12 inch album. The irony is that not too long ago, I was talking to someone from one of the record companies and they were saying that they thought that pretty soon CDs would be phased out in lieu of just 12 inch albums. And I just started cracking up because I said, I remember when they stopped making albums to make cds so the fact that they might stop making cds now just to have streaming media and albums would be uh like a crack up but you know I, I i agree with you totally i love holding something in my hand i lost i had an amazing uh, the best record collection you could imagine every heavy metal band going back through time and i had to sell it uh to raise some money when i had a family member that was ill and uh, you can never get that stuff back. But I still have my CD collection. And I, I ended up buying most of CDs of the albums that I'd lost. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's, I think being able to hold something in your hand and uh, look at it, there's so much more to that than it is just, you know, downloading it off the internet. Now, that doesn't mean you can't upload your songs to your computer or what have you, but being able to pull out the album and, pull out the inner sleeve and read the notes and look at the pictures in a large format, I think hopefully stays around for a lot longer. I agree. When I was a kid and I used to do that, every time a new album came out, I would just study, you know, the booklet. I would study the artwork, you know, look at the photos. When I was younger, I would sometimes think, okay, I need the name of that producer, that producer, in case I ever want to work with them. But then it got to a point where I was so grateful to work with producers and engineers and musicians that weren't known on a higher level because I feel as though it was the best education that school could not provide. I always say that one of the key elements of being a good musician is being a good listener and listening to people who are craftsmen at what they do, you know, listen to what they say. It doesn't matter if they sold a million records or not. If they're good at what they do, the work will speak for itself. Yeah, I agree totally. Getting back to what we're talking about, the physical media and you reading the booklets, I think there's something to be said for that uh, just because it's like watching the credits of a movie to see, you know, who did the special effects or what have you. Exactly. It's a way of a band to kind of share like, you know, this is all the people we worked with. I still put special thanks on there. You know, a lot of people think that special thanks are stupid. And then also too, you, you're going to leave out people, which is honest. 
that deserve to be on there and you may put people on there that may not deserve to be on there, but you're putting them anyway. But I still find it a way that I can thank some people personally that actually went out of their way to do something for the band. And I, I, I know there's people left off even on my list and maybe this is a time I can thank all of them for being so insensitive for not giving them credit. Jarvis Leatherby, you said that he's the one that got Sarah Thungle back together again? Yeah, that's a long story, but I can condense it down to something that's reasonable. Please do. Uh, and, and thank you, Jarvis. Yeah, we call him the hardest working man in rock and roll and that's the title that he deserves. Uh, long story, I worked with a gentleman, Carl Valdez, who was the original drummer in a punk band, Ill Repute, and he knew Jarvis because Jarvis did a lot of promoting with uh, punk bands in this area also, too, with some shows that he put on. And so my friend Carl says, uh, my friend Jarvis wants to talk to you about your band. And I'm, and this is, you know, after our band broke up, I was in no mood to do anything about the band. Matter of fact, I swore I would never touch another pair of drumsticks as long as I live until bad people left the music industry or something as crazy as that. So someone once uh, told me, well, that's never going to happen. So you'll never touch another drumstick. So anyway, I, I met Jarvis and he said, hey, my band Night Demon, we're playing all over the world and we see guys in Surathungal shirts and people are playing your songs and people know your band. And, you know, we're both from the same town. And he said, uh, you know, you guys should get back together. And I said, you know, definitely not. People have been asking us for 20 years. Never going to happen. And he said, well, you know what? I'm putting on a local festival here in town, but I'm going to bring people from all over the world and bring bands from all over the world. And I'd like you to come check it out. And he goes, if the band, if you guys were willing, you guys could do a meet and greet afterwards and sign some autographs and if people bring their albums and so we said sure so that happened and after watching all the bands on stage and after meeting like a whole group of people that showed up with albums that brought them as far away as spain and mexico and italy france and germany all over the world you know jarvis took us aside and there's another gentleman there oliver who puts on the keep it true festivals in germany every year which is one of the festivals that was always trying to showcase traditional metal and brings back bands that had broken up and what have you. And uh, Jarvis goes, look, if you guys get back together, I'll put on another festival next year and you guys can headline it. And Oliver goes even farther and he goes, he goes, matter of fact, he goes, I'll fly you and Tim over to check out my festival coming up. And if you guys like what you see, you guys can headline the, fe- the 20th anniversary of Keep It True the next year which was, uh, I think, 2016. And, uh, you know, we were all thinking about this. And, you know, our first reaction was, no, this is never going to happen. But then the band got together. We started talking about it and thinking, you know, hey, we're getting older. If we're ever going to do this again, let's do this. And the, the original plan for us to play just a couple of shows, just get out. A lot of our fans have been waiting their whole lives to see us. So we thought, you know, why are we withholding you know, Sir Thungo from these people that are dedicated fans of the band for so many years. And what happened was it just turned out to be kind of like a snowball rolling downhill. One show turned into another, turned into another, turned into our single Witch's Game, which turned into Forever Black. So here we are, we're like this giant swollen snowball cascading down the hill. So anyway, that's the story of how Jarvis got us together. And another little side on there, we tried to get our original bass player, Flint, to play in the band. For some reason or another, logistics wouldn't work out with his work schedule or what have you. So Jarvis says, well, you know, hey, I play bass you know he goes I'll play for you guys if you want me and he said sure and it's 
been a match made in heaven. I have so much respect for the Keep It True Fest. I have friends that have actually performed there. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the band Overlord from New Jersey. Okay. Mark Edwards is uh, one of my closest friends. I've I've done some uh, studio work with him. And it was actually because of the Overlord release, The Return of the Snow Giant, and through mutual friends that we became very close. To see him, his band have headlined once, you know, I was so happy for him. And also the band Cities. I believe it was AJ Perro from Twisted Sister. That was his band after he left or either before he joined. My friend Michael Power, who I used to play in a Dio tribute band with, was a vocalist in Cities when they played there. They're keeping it up. And of course, Ross the Boss performed the killer set there where he did, I thought, the best version of Battle Hymn from Man of War that I ever heard. So big shout out to the Keep It True Fest. Come back soon. Let's hope that live music comes back soon. I have a little bit more to add about Keep It True. Please do. Oliver would ask us, because he'd heard Forever Black, and he'd ask us to come over in 2020 to play keep it true and to, to headline both nights of it and they'd never had a band do that before yeah that's it, a first yeah and we'd even thought you know that that's kind of extreme you know and other bands were like you know who do these guys think that they are you know to headline both nights so that's not something we asked for it's something he asked us and the plan was i think he was so impressed with forever black we were going to play the album in its entirety the first night with some of our music from paradise lost and then the second night, we we're going to do you know, greatest hits off our other three albums. And when the pandemic hit, that got canceled. And the real depression in the band kind of sprung from that because we knew that that'll probably never happen again. To be able to go out and play a brand new album in its entirety, especially for a band like us with a bunch of fans that want to hear a lot of our other songs, we knew that was going to be a very rare, if not a one in a lifetime occasion that slipped by us. Now we're still booked to play, but this year got canceled again. Matter of fact, it was just going to be, I think it was last weekend or so. So now we're looking forward to next year with us just, you know, playing one night, but you know, we're going to try to cram as much as we can in to make up for what we lost from a year ago. One more thing, even though Jarvis got the band together, Oliver started in around 2011 emailing me every year. Hey, can you get back together? And I'd email back, no. And then 2012, <laughs> he'd email me again. Are you guys going to get back together? So it was the combined efforts between Jarvis and Oliver that actually pulled this whole thing off. Between 91, after Paradise Lost came out, and until Sarah Thungle reunited and started performing, what were you doing in between then? You said you never wanted to pick up another pair of drumsticks again, which is, I'm sorry, that's that's such an unfortunate statement. I mean, dude, you're a killer drummer. I mean, really, like... Why? You that's what you were born to do. <laughs> what were well, you doing between then? Like Lord Cthulhu. Oh, right, there you go. Cthulhu looks better when you put him right in front of you. Yes, exactly. There you go. <laughs> Here's what happened to Cthulhu. Like when his time had passed, he slipped beneath the waves, waiting for the stars to realign and the spheres to reconnect so that he could rise from the ocean again to wreak his havoc upon the world. And so that's what we were doing. That's a short answer, but that's all I got to say on that. I'll take it. One of the things that definitely stands out to me the most about Sarah Ungle is the fact that you use Elric of the Michael Moorcock novels as the figure of your album covers. What is the significance 
of the work of Michael Moorcock for you as an artist? Like, what was it about Elric that stood out that you'd say, yeah, that's who we want on our album covers? Or what is it about him that makes you a fan? Well, you know, I think this goes back to how the band was formed. Greg and I were in an advanced English class in seventh grade, and we were assigned to read The Lord of the Rings. And that pushed us into a direction of reading a lot of sword and sorcery literature, Conan the Barbarian, Cain ah, the Barbarian. Robert Fabric. E. Howard, very good. Yeah, all that stuff. As a matter of fact, all of that is just just amazing. You know, Bran McMorn, King of the Picks, all of that stuff. When we were putting out Frost and Fire, we were looking for a cover. And this is a true story. It's kind of a weird story, but it's true. We've been such a fan of all this sword and sorcery uh, literature and art. We were a, a great lover of Frank Frazetta, who's from your area. And, and one of his paintings, Berserker, was one of our favorite paintings which was on a Conan book. And we were thinking, hey, this is the cover we would like. And once again, it's not so much as our music is about what's depicted in the thing. We just wanted an imagery that would actually reflect kind of the same tone that we wanted our music to reflect. And about that same time, Greg walks into the band room one day with Molly Hatchett's album with Picture Berserker on the cover. They ended up using a lot of Frank Frazetta's paintings out of those series of Conan books for their covers, not unlike we did with Michael Moorcock book covers. So we were kind of left, what are we going to do? Greg being the avid reader he was, he would always turn me on to either new music, every band practice, he'd bring an album over or a book or something and hand it to me saying, hey, you got to read this or you got to listen to this band, right? And that's how I was kind of turned on to so many of my influences over the years. He'd loaned me Michael Moorcock's book, Stormbringer. And I think it's kind of ironic because that's the last in a series of books. And he gave that to me first. And I think I read him out of order. I had that in my hand when he was showing me the uh, uh, Molly Hatchet cover. And we were thinking about what are we going to do? And I remember looking down and seeing this cover on the book Stormbringer. And I think I said, hey, this would make the best album cover that was ever existed ever. And nothing derogatory towards Frank Frazetta, who's one of the, the three pillars of sword and sorcery art, along with Boris and Michael Whalen. But that picture is just so amazing. I've had the opportunity to see it in real life. I would sell my liver on eBay to have that thing. Don't and do eBay, that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I contacted Daw Books, who put out that series of Michael Moorcock editions, uh, Elric edition at the time during late 70s, early 80s. They put me in contact with Michael Whalen. I wrote him a letter, said, hey, we're a band. We'd love to use your painting for our album cover. And we had the distinction of being the first uh, band ever to use any of his artwork for an album. And that relationship has carried on to today. And he's one of the handful of people in the band's history, including Brian Slagle, who started Metal Blade Records, who has been with us there from the start. And also been there in a relationship which transcends just friendship, almost one of family. And so it's not so much that our music is about Elric or influenced necessarily by Michael Moorcock as it is that we feel that these paintings share something with our music. And that that's a, a theme of sort of this sword and sorcery uh imagery which kind of is going on in both of them i actually got to give credit to my eighth grade history teacher mr manios because he was the one who turned me on to elric when i was old enough to appreciate the album artwork of a Sarah Ungle, and i made the association as a fan it just made me really happy to see i first heard of the character because blue oyster cult had a song called black blade which is about elric and the sword stormbringer and, you know, he asked me, like, you know, what was your favorite song on the CD I lent you? And I said, oh, that Black Blade song was was killer. Next day, he had a, a, a secondary copy of 
the the books of Elric and he gave me one and I still have it to this day to see Elric on a metal album cover it's fucking killer I'm not gonna lie <laughs> yeah no no it's perfect and you know people have said they bought the album for the album cover and they thought the band sucked but they'd still have the album because oh the cover was so good. Uh, I have a similar story. I had a hardbound edition in two two volumes of all the Elric books together, and I loaned one of them to a friend, and I never ever saw it again. And so I, I lost that book. I still have an uh, original edition of those Daw books, but they're kind of, you know, they've they're they're historical interest, but they've kind of aged kind of not so well. So I'm not sure you could read them. Yeah, you know, you know what's amazing about that whole Michael Moorcock thing and. and the Michael Whalen and all that. I, I I think once again, Sir Thungle, we've had these two dueling imageries we use in our music. And one is sword and sorcery, uh, which would be like frost and fire or the frost monstrum off forever black. Uh, and also too, the other side is kind of like a doom, uh, doom laden lyrics and themes such as death of the sun, which was on a first metal massacre album or doom planet, uh, are much of the work which is on Forever Black, which is so much of Tim's dystopian nightmare future. Um, so th that's kind of guided our band along these two uh, parallel paths musically. We ended up writing a song, uh, Stormbringer, on Forever Black. And one of the main reasons was is so many people have said, you know, how come, you know, all your songs aren't about the Lord of the Rings or about Elric or about any of that stuff? It was never our intention to make a career of doing that. We were just using that imagery, whether it was for the name or the album covers, to be associated with our art. But we finally decided, hey, let's do a song about Stormbringer. Uh, Tim wrote some pretty masterful uh, lyrics. Jimmy did some amazing leads on there. It was the band's first probably and only ballad we'll ever do, but I think it did some justice to both Michael Moorcock and also to Stormbringer. Definitely did. It's funny that you mentioned that about the fans that approach you and say, you know, how come every song is about this? It's like sometimes they forget that the artist, the songwriter, has a creative license to, for lack of a better term, write whatever the hell they want. You know, they don't have to just stick with one theme. I mean, it's different if you're writing a concept album, but if you're writing an album, which is a volume of a collection of songs, then, you know, you want them all to be unique and different in their own way, but still come out sounding like what you want the band to sound like. I mean, to me, it's like, I just appreciate a good song. I never expect for it to follow a theme. I mean, you know, I mentioned before about Rush, you know, if every song was about the Fountainhead or, you know, the works of Ayn Rand, I'd probably, you know, go crazy you know i like differentiation in music where it's like you know the artists just you know they, they could take influence from a source that's been around for a long time for example steve harris of iron Maiden. you know he can write songs about different literary works or different historical figures but it still sounds like maiden being themselves i i would associate the same with sirith ungle i mean just because the name has a, a connotation with uh, the works of Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. And the artwork, you know, has the connotation of the works of Michael Moorcock with Elric. You should be able to do whatever the hell you want. <laughs> well, that's, that's what we've done. I just want everyone to know, you know, we picked that name when we were like 13, you know. And even though we were influenced heavily by the Lord of the Rings and people ask me whether we still are, and of course we are. Matter of fact, uh, one of the funniest stories is, uh, you know, we pronounce the name wrong. And even though we read the books many times, 
obviously we didn't read the appendixes uh, of the book where they explained how you're supposed to pronounce all the words right and when we were playing at that rock hard festival at Gelsenkirchen, uh, Germany, a German journalist asked us, she goes, is it true that you speak Elvish? And we started cracking up because we were saying, you know, well, if we spoke Elvish, we probably would have pronounced the band's name correctly. <laughs> well, if you're going to pronounce, uh, if you're going to talk Elvish, then uh, the, I would recommend watch the uh, special features of Fellowship of the Ring and listen to the wonderful voice of Christopher Lee because then you'll know how to speak Elvish properly. You know what's amazing? That's another funny thing about this. When we read those books, they weren't a household name. Matter of fact, if you walked up today and hand someone three 600-page books, of course, now I'm maybe with Game of Thrones and all the other series, like on Netflix and stuff, people do that just out of hand. But back then, you know, it, it was like reading three volumes of War and Peace. And so it, it wasn't a struggle so much as it was, you know, it, it, to actually pick those books up and read them seriously is a commitment and uh i don't think people realize with all the movies out and everything how at one time these this was just literature that was circulated amongst a handful of people that were into that type of primitive sword and sorcery uh, literature before it exploded on the scene with all these other authors we talked about i'm amazed at, at what's come of all the movies and stuff and uh, someone today told me that there's a new series coming out of some of the earlier Lord of the Rings stuff being produced. And so I'll be very interested to see how that comes out. Is it based on works separate uh, from the original books or is it works based on the Silmarillion? Is it more like the tales of yeah, no, uh, Middle-earth? I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it's the it's the earlier Tolkien work about the back history of the elves and Sauron and stuff like that which I think is going to be really cool because that's more in line with the stuff that Sir Thungal does, the heavy, uh, ominous, gloomy, dark. The good vision. stuff. Yeah, the, the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, the good stuff. There you go. Looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. But I will say this. It was the animated films, the two Rankin-Bass and the one uh, Ralph Bakshi films that turned me on to The Lord of the Rings. And that's what got me to read The Hobbit straight through to The Return of the King. And for me, it was not a problem reading them. And yes, as a fan, it pains me that they deviated so much from the book with certain key elements. But I digress. We're not here to talk about that. But I will say this. The Silmarillion is still the hardest book to, to read. It's, I, I, I can't. <laughs> it's like the hardest book I've ever read. It's not even a matter of its length. It's the matter of like the text itself just jumps. It's not consistent. I don't know how you feel about it. Hopefully when they make this Netflix or whatever they're going to do with this new series, and I'm joking, of course, but hopefully they'll tie that together better. And I know what you're saying. I think it jumps around. I think uh, J.R. Tolkien, such an amazing intellect. You know, I think maybe he was given credit to all, all of us as being as smart as he was since he came up with the whole storyline that we'd be able to follow it easier. There's enough material to do some, definitely some crazy new stuff. And I'll be looking forward, like I said, to see it. There's always been talk recently about an Elric series coming to life on the big screen. I heard about that, but I heard that that show The Watcher, I think, with Henry Cavill is sort of like, uh, people have accused it of being a direct ripoff of Elric, I think. Yeah, I, I don't know much. All I know is like every time we hear some kind of rumor that something's going to happen, all of us are interested because it's something that's close to our heart. You mentioned Metal Blade Records before. When I was a college radio DJ, and I still hold these words true to this day that metal blade as far as i'm concerned was the main label for me that kept 
metal, heavy metal alive. I mean, they, I mean, yeah, there was Roadrunner, there was Nuclear Blast, there was Century Media. I'm not taking anything away from those bands, but to me, what separated Metal Blade from the rest of them is because even though a lot of those bands on those other labels sold more, to me, I feel like Metal Blade really kept its integrity by having bands on their on their roster that just released damn good quality music. And yeah. Brian Slagle is he is uh, he's a legendary figure in heavy metal, and we wouldn't be talking today if it wasn't for him. Because when we met first, he was working at Oz Records in a suburb of Los Angeles, and we produced Frost and Fire, and we were trying to shop it around to record companies, and that wasn't working very good. He gave us a number of a company, uh, Green World, that would end up licensing the record and exporting it around the world, which actually that company marked into Enigma, which put out King of the dead originally and they morphed later into restless which had put out paradise lost i didn't want to mention that label by name because i didn't want to bring up any bad history no no the the relationship that we had with green world enigma and restless it was like a love-hate relationship without them we probably wouldn't have anything happened for the band but also too they could have probably done more to actually help us promote the band or at least point us in a better direction they did bring in once a manager that wanted to manage us and he said you know first thing we have to do is start wearing makeup and do our hair and stuff like that and oh, we they try to we, glamify you yeah we refused and this gentleman actually went on to be one of the guys that started guns and roses and the joke is that you know guns and roses made so much money that like you know all of us in the band were like you know we're reaching for like mascara and lipstick and stuff and wishing that we would have gone back and actually maybe taken them up on that but i i think in retrospect someone asked me this today if we could go back through time and maybe change something, maybe they would have made us more commercially acceptable. Would we have done it? And I think the answer is no, because I think our goal was to create this super heavy music, the glam thing and all that. They may be compatible to other people, but to us as a band, they weren't. And we decided to to stick it out and uh, we failed uh, miserably. The music didn't fail, but uh, the success, commercial success of the band drove us to our first breakup. But I think if we would have gone back and done anything differently, I think the music would have been different. And I don't think none of us would have been able to be happy with that. That's my story about them. But, you know, they, they did do an awful lot for the band by just getting our music spread out around the world. Uh, Roadrunner Record actually picked up King of the Dead and licensed it in Europe. And so, you know, we got more fans and still the majority of our fan base is outside the United States. It's sad, but that's the, the reality metal fans i would say when it comes to the music buying public they are the most loyal they will stick with a band until they draw their last breath i am not against people who do music for commerce i have nothing against that at all but i am about integrity and i will say this a lot of those bands that did go the route of commercial success most of them are not around to this day and you don't hear about a lot of them you guys are still around the songs still hold up the proof is in the visual representation that is out there when you guys are performing like the rock hard festival in germany or when you're requested to play keep it true i think that's a testament to your band for keeping your integrity and not feeling like you had to sell yourselves short in order to be not just remembered but successful at this juncture it really brings me a lot of joy to see that 
traditional metal bands. And I don't mean that to say that it sounds old, so I apologize if it's coming off like that. But to me, when I think of traditional metal, to me, that's quality. The quality's still there. Well, you know, you're right. And there's a lot of bands out today. I don't want to mention any because I'll leave some out. But at every festival we played with bands, it just blew us away. Some in a traditional epic metal, kind of like what we play. Others, even uh, the stoner rock or black metal, death metal. So many bands that we played with have just really inspired us just because of not only their ingenuity, but they're willing to bend the norms of metal to what they see as, as their true version of it. And I, th- I think that's what the beauty of it is. You and me may agree on what the original version of traditional metal is. And I see Sir Thungal as a direct descendants of the Deep Purples and the Black Sabbaths and Mountain bands like that. Someone else may see us as coming from a different strain. Our goal was to carry on that style of music, not copy it, but just to like, you know, bring it into the future with us. And at some point we stand on the shoulders of all of those bands that came before us. And there's bands now, young bands coming up, which are going to stand on our shoulders and raise the torch of true metal above their head and carry it forward and that's there's no doubt in my mind because i've shared the same stage with bands and the whole new generation is there and once we fade off the screen and go beyond the veil there'll be someone picking up the torch and carrying it forward wonderful do you have any plans for any future full lengths or maybe re-releases of your past material. Well, I think that's why we did this EP to get that out of the way to satisfy some people because we want to forge ahead with more new material a la Forever Black. And, you know, it's probably not a complete secret, but, you know, we're already working on that right now. And the goal is to have another album out before the end of this decade. Anyway, I'm just joking. But, Take your uh, time. No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do like Grand Funk, you know, we'll get it done in six weeks. But no, that, that's the plan. And what I want to see is I want it to be heavier than Forever Black. Now, everyone loves Forever Black, and I think it's a really strong album, but the goal is for us to like even crank it up one more notch if we we're able to. That's the plan. Very cool. And I know you mentioned that Euro festivals will probably occur again in 2022. Yeah, you know, we're booked at a bunch of shows right now, but it's hard to mention any of them because you don't know, you know, what's going to happen. If you look at what's happening around the world, things are in flux. Keep It True was rescheduled, and then that had to be canceled but the plan is is once everything's open again we're gonna go out and play i'm ready right now i'm ready to go the band's ready to go but you know we just want to make sure that it's safe for everyone to get together again and share this joy which we call metal very cool if things open up in the states this year hopefully some potential touring in the united states yeah i think there's some i think we're booked for some shows later on this year And once again, hopefully that they'll happen. The plan is to go out and make up for lost time from Forever Black. So we'll be able to share some of that and that past human with the rest of the Sir Thongo followers. And, you know, we we just want to get out and play again. Someone else brought this up, though, and this is the truth. You know, we have quite a few albums out with some pretty strong material on there. So there's like an ongoing discussion in the band, like, you know, what songs are we going to include in the set without upsetting, you know, members of the audience? Well, you're going to offend somebody every now and then. So might as well just do whatever brings you joy. Exactly. And it's like, what do you leave out? King of the Dead or Master of the Pit or Chaos Descends, Black Machine. But anyway, we're, we're trying to put together a set that's going to please everyone if we can. Wonderful. Please use this time to promote where the people 
can find out more about you and Sarah Thungle? The band has a Facebook page, which has a link to uh, the band store where we sell some collectible and also limited edition band merchandise. Then also to Metal Blade has a website with all sorts of information about the band. We have an Instagram account, Twitter account, you know, just to kind of share with people what's going on with the band at the time. I would just say, you know, it's not hard to find us. We're, we're on social media. We're on the internet, YouTube. People can still go to uh, YouTube and listen to the entire Forever Black album, which is posted up there for free for people. I would encourage people to go to listen to that. Me too. Highly recommended. Yeah. If you see that we're coming to a show near you, come out and see the band because we consider ourselves an elder statesman of heavy metal now. And we're in that fast approaching category of musicians that won't be around forever. So if you get a chance to come out and see us, come out and let's spend some time together and we will share with you our very unique brand of heavy metal. Any people or bands you want to say a quick hello to, a quick shout out? Specifically, I'd like to thank Armand, Jarvis, and Dustin, everyone at Night Demon for supporting us, uh, everyone at Metal Blade for supporting the band, all of our fans and the people that have listened to us over the years and continue to support us because that's the reason we're here. We're writing music for ourselves, but the only thing that keeps us doing that is people listening to us other than ourselves. And I will continue to listen because it's good stuff. I'm very grateful for the time that I got to spend with Mr. Robert Garvin, founder and drummer of Sirithungal. The name of the EP is Half Past Human. Please check out on iTunes the song Brutish Manchild. The EP will drop on May 28th. Yes, sir. Got that right. On Metal Blade (laughs) Records. I speak for Cthulhu when I say, I think that's what he talks about. I don't know. (laughs) But Robert, thank you so much for joining me tonight on Rat's Eye Review. I really do appreciate your time. Yeah, you guys have a great website and I look forward to seeing this. And I read several of the other reviews on there and anyone is spreading the word about heavy metal. We're all in this together. We're brothers in arms. And so I want to congratulate you for everything that you and your pals have done. Keep it up. Thank you so much. Really do appreciate that. Sarah Ungle, Half Past Human. May 28th, Metal Blade Records. To find out more about Ratsai Review, please subscribe, like, comment. The website is ratsireview.com. Want to drop a quick shout out to all the other podcasts on the network. There's Beyond Bushido with James and Eric. There is Suck My Balls, the South Park podcast. There's my podcast, Music is Life podcast. There's also going to be Green Mangoes World, which is coming out, where he talks about counterculture-ish stuff, cult classic stuff. I just helped Bob record his first episode, so that's going to be fun. A fun discussion on the works of Quentin Tarantino. There's Old Man Metal. There's Timo Toki. Whenever he decides to come back and record another podcast, Timo, what's up? Right now, Wayne and I are working on another cover song with Lisa from White Crone and Ralph from Thrash or Die. That'll be out soon. Final shout out, Sarah Thungle, Half Past Human, May 28th, Metal Blade Records. Buy it. Ratsawreview.com. Thanks so much, everyone, for tuning in. Good night, everybody.